My name is Brad. I'm the lead pastor here. I'm so glad that you've come to worship with us. We're in a series that is about remarkable people of the Old Testament. Remarkable people. There's all these colorful people through the many books that make up the Old Testament that lead us to the life of Jesus. But even before the coming of Christ, there are these interesting, fascinating, strange, colorful characters that God uses to point us the way as sort of a doorway in to the presence of God. Uh, Remarkable people. Remarkable people in the most literal of ways means that people that are worthy of returning to. Remarkable. It's like if you were marking up your Bible. Some of you like have a habit of doing that. Remarkable people means that there are some stories that are worth returning to over and over and over again, no matter how old you get because God has something new to say to you that might stretch your heart, that might lead you into a deeper experience of God. So the invitation through the rest of the summer in this series is to feast on Scripture. Some of you might know, even if you're not a researcher, that in America, Bible reading is in steep decline. The irony is that Bibles are more available to us than ever, in more uh, versions or translations than ever. It's ubiquitous, you know, it's free to us all. And in the midst of that abundance, Americans read the Bible actually less and less and less every year. And whatever your personal disposition might be, We all live in sort of that cultural momentum, like an ocean tide that draws us away into feeling like, not that relevant. And our confidence in this space is to say, well, that the scripture is inspired. God is breathing life into his people through scripture. So let's be people who are renewed in our curiosity, in our love, in our wrestling with scripture. Today's remarkable person is a man named Balaam. We read about him uh, and will read about him in a moment in a book called Numbers. His name is a foreboding name. It means devourer of the people. He is a destroyer of God's people. He is a threatening figure. He is, you might call him a prophet of another nation and religion, but I think there are people who are prophets of at least good intention in their hearts that are just trying to speak words of wisdom. So in that sense, Balaam is not a prophet per se. He's more of a sorcerer, the arch enemy of God's people in all caps. He's sort of like a Hitler-type figure. He's spoken up in four books of the Old Testament, three books of the New Testament, spanning hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And in all of these places in Scripture, he is referred to in starkly negative terms. In the New Testament, in the book of 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 15, it says these words. It said, Balaam loved the wages of doing harm. That's quite poetic language. It means that he's a hitman for hire. He loved the wages of doing harm, and that's what we'll see in the story that we read. 
But as awful as Balaam was, and he was a bad dude, the book of Numbers devotes three chapters to him that are filled with a surprising uh, note of humor. So you have this bad man and God's inspired story injecting humor into the story. And I think there's a very important reason for that, which hopefully I would unfold for you in a way that's understandable. Before we get into it, let me pray for us all, and then we'll jump into the story. So God, we come from all different kind of places, some of us traveling here and there, some of us wishing we could travel here or there, some of us with hearts full of faith, and some of us with hearts severely pressed. You know the journey of each one here. So we pray that you would gather us together, calm all our fears, and pour out your spirit upon us that your word might be living and might breathe new life into our hearts. These things we pray in the strong name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen, amen. All right, the context of the book of Numbers, the fourth book of the Old Testament, is that God has set his people free from slavery in Egypt. There's this tremendous piece of art uh, that I found on the internet that diagrams Israel's journey from Egypt on the left side of that image across that part of the Red Sea through the desert of Sinai, Mount Sinai, where they received the Ten Commandments. There's the great squiggly line because it takes them longer than it could have taken them. The journey might have been something like two weeks, and it takes them a little bit longer than that. You know, if you know the story, it takes them some 40 years. When I was a young adult, I was thinking, like, what a bunch of idiots, you know? <laughs> and I realized now that I turned 60 in May, it was like, oh, that idiot is, you know, there's so many things in our lives that if we just could have given ourselves to the truth of God, if I could have shed my performance orientation when Jesus said that he would be enough for me, well, my life could have taken on a totally different trajectory. Couldn't do it then. Here I am now. God's still with us. So the journey is longer than we want it to be sometimes. God is with us. He leads them all the way up into the east side, all the way to the right of the promised land, to a land called Moab. And that's uh, where the Israelites are in Numbers chapter 22. They're on the cusp of entering the promised land after their 40 years of wandering. And I'll just note in the large uh, trajectory of the book of Genesis, God's uh, first book to us in the Old Testament, to Numbers, the fourth book, we have symmetry and promise here. If you're a reader of the Old Testament, you know a story about Adam and Eve, the first human beings, that because of their lack of trust in God, they're cast out of Eden, the place that's beautiful and rich and good for them. And we also live, in one sense, east of Eden, apart from the pleasures and the promises of God in their fullness to us. And there is a sense in which as they get ready to go from Moab, Mount Nebo on this map, crossing the Jordan River into God's promised land, that they are re-entering another kind of Eden. God's promises are never thwarted. 
there is a place of pleasure for the people of God, and that's what Eden means, a place of pleasure, because God is present, and his promises are abundant in that space. So this is a long-awaited moment, and this long-awaited moment in God's people's history is also a moment of tremendous vulnerability. They are, on the one hand, on the precipice of their destiny, but on the other hand, the key leaders that they have been depending on, Moses and Aaron, they are subbing out of the game. Steph Curry is not in for the last four minutes of the game. Moses has a serious case of burnout. We see him increasingly complaining. He's hitting rocks and all sorts of irrational things. Aaron, the high priest, this person that connects them with God, dies during this time. Their key leaders are out in a most important time. And into this vulnerable space, in the vacuum of leadership, there arises an enemy, a Moabite king named Balak. He, of course, is threatened by this large tribe of Hebrew people wandering into his territory. That's the way we tribal people are. We feel threatened by others. And because he's threatened by the Hebrew people, he hires Balaam to cast a curse upon the people of God. So that's where we pick up. Balaam is going with these Moabite officials to cast a curse upon God's people. Numbers chapter 21, verse 21, here we go. Balaam got up in the morning, he saddled his donkey, and he went with Moabite officials. But God was angry that he went and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding his donkey, and there were two servants with him. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in hand, it turns off the road and into a field. Now, I'll just pause here. I have more to say, but you know, many of the pictures we see of angels are very harmless-looking creatures. <laughs> you know, this one has a sword in hand. Balaam cannot see that angel with the sword, but the donkey can, and so he turns off the road. The donkey wants nothing to do with the sword. Carrying on, Balaam beats his donkey to try to get it to go back on the road, and the angel of the Lord stands in this narrow path through the vineyard with walls on both sides, and when the donkey sees the angel of the Lord, it presses close to the wall. It's trying to get away from the scary angel, and it crushes Balaam's foot against it. And so Balaam beats his donkey again. It's like, why is he not going straight? It's like a car with tires that are pulling the wrong way. Hit the steering wheel. The angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stands in a narrow place where there's no room to turn either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord and had nowhere else to go, it laid down under Balaam. Balaam's trying to get his donkey to go, and the donkey's laying down. And it says that Balaam was angry, and he beat his donkey with his staff. So, you know, this is happening over and over again. Balaam is going to curse God's people. The angel of the Lord keeps standing in the way of Balaam and his donkey. The donkey keeps turning aside because he knows that the angel is mighty. Balaam, unable to see this angel, keeps beating his donkey. And then the story resolves in this way. It says in verse 28 that the Lord opened the donkey's mouth. 
Yes, that was a humorous story, so here we go. The Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and it said to Balaam, Yo, uh, (laughs) what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Interestingly, Balaam's not all that shocked that his donkey's talking to him. He, (laughs) He just answers him. He said, well, you've made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. Okay, Balaam is not a nice, not a nice master. The donkey reasons with Balaam. The dumb ass <laughs> is reasoning with the sorcerer. And he says, hey, am I not your own donkey, which you've always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? And uh, Balaam says, no. And in that moment, the Lord opens Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a sword drawn. And Balaam, the sorcerer, this man who struck fear in the hearts of God's people, bows low and falls face down in the presence of God. This is a good moment for God's people. Balaam realizes that he's in the presence of greatness. It's a greatness that's stronger than his own. Balaam had a sense of self-identity, that he was a person of power, but he knows intuitively that he's in the presence of a greater power, and he does what we most naturally do when we are in the presence of greatness. We bow low. We take a posture of submission. This is God's word to us. Now, why has God preserved this story for us in Holy Scripture? Why in the midst of hundreds and hundreds, more than a thousand years of people afraid of Balaam, talking about the dangers of this man Balaam, why is there this strange story of Balaam talking to a donkey? I think the main reason is that it's about the frailty of human faith. In the story of the book of Numbers, faith is always the minority perspective. God is great in mercy and in love and power and in strength. The human response to the offer of God is fleeting in faith. We are like sandcastles with the waters of circumstance always washing up on the shore. We look great on the outside sometimes, but faith so easily crumbles. That's the story of the book of Numbers. It's why the journey takes 40 years. There are 12 spies that go out into the land, 10 of whom are too frightened to report that God has something good in store. The percentages of people in faith of those spies is a minority report. And we'll find further into the book of Numbers that the number of people that go into the land are fewer than should be. There are some people who settle less than for what God has in store. This strange story is written that we might not fail in faith to cash in, if I can use a crass analogy to cash in on the very good and precious promises of God. Numbers contains numerous nuggets of wisdom 
let me just unpack a couple of them that strike me as meaningful for us today. First and foremost, the spiritual journey uh, that is an authentically Christian spiritual journey is always opposed by cursing enemies. We would like the journey to be smooth. If God is good, if God is powerful, one might think the journey would be smooth. And that's simply not the case. We could go on and on about why that is, but that's the story of Scripture, old and new. An authentically Christian spiritual journey is always opposed by cursing enemies. Those who are ignorant to this reality, who haven't wrestled with it significantly, are consigned to lives of frustration in faith. And those who embrace this idea are equipped with necessary wisdom to proceed and ascend into the presence of God. The children of God are closer to their destiny than ever before, but the closer they get, the bigger their enemies become. And the same is true in our life journey. You know, in our materialistic society, we don't often speak about the reality of curses. And it may sound to many of us like curses. That sounds like something from a primitive culture, you know, something uh, like that's the way people taught before they got educated, like we are educated. So I want to uh, bring into view the reality that such things as blesses, blessings and curses are real things in the biblical worldview. In the book of wisdom in the Old Testament, Proverbs 18, verse 21, it says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. This is saying to us that the things that we say and the things that we listen to with our hearts have the power to bring us into increasing energy. Words can impart the energy of life and words can extinguish the energy of life. What we listen to and what we believe has the power to impart greater boldness and it also has the power to extinguish our boldness and faith. I should add also that curses can be nonverbal and even unintentional. It's possible in family systems for parents without speaking words to create a cultural expectation in which kids feel like the standard is too high. It's impossible to please dad. It's possible to please mom. It's po possible to do that in the workplace as well, to create a standard that people cannot attain to without help. I'd like to suggest that that is a kind of curse. In my travels this summer, you know, you know there's like flights across the, across the country and into Europe, you know, you have a lot of time to watch movies, you know. So I watched a movie about uh, Tiger Woods. So, you know, for those of you who aren't into the world of golf, Tiger Woods, you know, the most famous golfer of our time, uh, was almost the greatest golfer, would have been the greatest golfer in our world, uh, except that his life completely imploded. Uh, not because his body gave in first and foremost, but because his character imploded. And uh, this movie just told the story of how his father uh, parented in a way that was just a curse to his son. The story was about how Tiger Woods 
longed for the affections of his father, like any son does for a father. And how the father was intending to raise a champion. And you know, Tiger Woods' father had been in the military. And in his program of raising a champion, he wanted to make him mentally tough. And he used what sort of amounted to psychological warfare on his son. He wanted to toughen him up. Tiger Woods' father, Earl Woods, actually loved his son. But he expressed that broken love in a way that was a profound hurt. And Tiger Woods' life was a disaster because of it. The sources of cursing can be many. Cursing can come from people, from critics, from irritants, from abusers. Curses can come from communal systems like work teams and families. Curses can come from voices that sound like they are from with our own selves. And if you are a follower of Jesus, we read about a character in the scripture called Satan. Satan does not mean little red guy with a tail and horns. Satan means accuser. And the great sense of scripture is that through all of these media, through other people, through the systems in which we are embedded, and through our own inner doubts and voices, there is a spiritual power that accuses, that curses. So I want to finish off with my last point, but before I do, I just wonder if when you think about your life in this past year or in this past season, I wonder if you can discern the possibility of some kind of curse that you labor under. That sounds awfully scary, so maybe I could put it in more practical terms. A sign of a statement that subtracts life. One of those signs might be the, the ongoing presence of the words never and always in our lives in ways that extinguish the fire of life. Never, if you find yourself saying things that approximate, I'll never get that promotion. I'll never find love. I'll never find a community that's worth giving myself to. I never get the recognition that I deserve. Never or always, I always get left out. I always get abandoned somewhere along the way. I always draw the short straw. I always get messed over in life. Those would be signs that you are living your life or laboring under some kind of voice of darkness. Or maybe it's true of someone that's close to you that you care about. The spiritual journey is always opposed by cursing enemies. And my other point is simply this, that in the midst of whatever adversity that can come our way, that we face many kinds of adversity, God is always present to defend and to bless. In the midst of cancer, and in the midst of dementia, and in the midst of getting fired, and in the midst of getting dumped, and in the midst of jobs that seem endless with problems that you cannot fix, God has not abandoned you. God is present in your circumstance to defend and to bless. 
Numbers tells us something, this story about the manner in which God is present. It tells us that the looming threats of our lives are a little bit like Balaam. The threats in our lives loom large. They're menacing, tangible, and loud. And the presence of God is like the angel with the sword, sometimes imperceptible to us, sometimes so imperceptible that we wonder, where is God? Or if you're neurotic, you wonder, what have I done that's so inadequate that God has abandoned me in this space? And the word of God to us, should you wonder any of those things, is do not fear. Do not allow yourself to be intimidated. Do not draw back. Do not minimize the promises of God. Because God is saying to us in this story, whatever fear you might experience, and God's people in Numbers would experience a lot of fear on the way to the promised land, God is saying, I am right there with you. And there is no enemy that's too large for me. I have my sword in hand. I will not abandon you. And this story is telling us that there is no enemy that can stop God from leading us into the land of blessing. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 8, Balaam finally opens his mouth, even though he's got this large promise of money to curse God's people, he opens his mouth and says, how can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? And then God uses this wicked man, this devourer of a man. God uses him to speak blessing over his people. That's all throughout Numbers chapter 24 and 25, but just one quick image. Try to open your imagination to this. In verses 5 and 6, Balaam the sorcerer, speaking of God's children, says, how fair are your tents. He's speaking of the gathering of God's people. How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like the palm groves that stretch far away, like gardens beside a river, water shall flow from his buckets, the people of Israel. His seed shall have abundant water. God's people will never be in want, the sorcerer says. His king shall be higher than Agag, the greatest of the kings in the eastern world at the time, and his kingdom shall be exalted. The sorcerer is telling God's people, God will have his way. Do not lose hope in him. He's telling them, in the land of threats, and you will face threats. None of us, no matter how much money we have, and no matter how many great vacations we go on, we cannot escape a life of vulnerability. And the prophet is saying that in the land of these threats, you shall prosper. The book of Numbers is telling us that your past may be checkered with failure, and you may feel totally overwhelmed and outgunned, but God is battling on your behalf for the fulfillment of a, a destiny that's greater than you can imagine. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul said it this way, that God is able, God is able to make all things work together for the good of those who love him. All things, the things that we don't want to happen, the terrible disease-ridden things that happen, God is able to use those things in our lives, he's present in the midst of them. And if we stay present to him, he will accomplish his work in us. He will mature us. He will bind us to the love of Christ. He will make us to be a blessing to many. He will strengthen 
our faith. I want to be clear here and say, I don't believe God sends bad things into our lives. God does not send cancer or dementia or bad work situations into your life, but he will not abandon you in that space. And in this moment of intense anxiety, God's people feel so overwhelmed by the great enemies around them. In this intense anxiety, God gives the people a funny story. It's a way, I think, of downsizing the threats of our lives. Yes, they are real, but they are small in the presence of Almighty God. The sorcerer is a dark character, and even though he blesses God's people, he doesn't become a good man. He continues on in his life of sorcery. He continues to be a bad man. That's why the New Testament speaks ill of him. But God is saying in Numbers 22 to us that in the presence of Almighty God, the sorcerer is no more menacing than a dumbass. That's the name of the story. It should be noted before I close that while God is with us and God is able to overcome any enemy, the story of Numbers tells us that many of God's children miss out on the blessing that he has stored up for them. That's a sobering thought. The book of Numbers tells us that an entire generation of God's children miss out. And the irony of this remarkable man, Balaam, is that this evil man, this sorcerer, shows us how to avoid missing out on the promises of God. Though thick-headed, he does listen to God. And when he recognizes the greatness of God, he bows before him. He surrenders his willful spirit. He turns aside from the rewards of the world. He recognizes the supremacy of God in all things. And if we will too, our hearts will be strengthened and we will journey forward into the promises of God. We take some time, typically, as the teaching comes to a close, to have some time to digest all of these big ideas. What do they mean for you? If you've been with us the last couple of years, we've typically done that by turning in groups of two or three just to kind of chat and process things, and we're not doing away with that. But as I was preparing for this message, I just thought some sort of like shake-up might be nice. It's summertime. It's time for people to do different kinds of things. Uh, and so I wanted to invite a friend to come and lead us in prayer. So uh, Eddie Shaheen, um, many of you might not know, Eddie was employee number two of the river. So she's here before I was, as long as I've been here. And uh, in more recent years has helped in leading the prayer ministry. And I just wanted her to sort of lead us in time of listening and of giving our hearts to God. Let's shake it up. Um, as Brad asked me to come and, and create um, a space for prayer, I was asking the Lord what, what we should pray for today. And um, blindness seemed like a good theme. Um, ways that we are blind to his work in our lives, um, where we can't discern his presence in our circumstances. And so we're going to spend some time praying into that today. Um, but I just want to uh, check in and remember together that um, blindness is not a problem for Jesus. Can I get an amen? There we go. There we go. Blindness is not a problem for Jesus. We have witnessed his activity through scripture, that physical and spiritual blindness, not a problem. 
That is the God we serve. And in that, I think the Lord wants to um, heal us of our blindness. He did that for Balaam, who was a wicked enemy of God. How much more does he want to do that for you and me? It's not an effort that we have to do. He just does it in an instant. So as I pray for us, I just want to encourage you to lean into faith that your God loves you, that he is for you, and he has not forgotten you in whatever circumstance. So let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. Remove the scales from our eyes that we might see you, that we might discern your voice and your presence in every dark place where we fear that we are alone. Jesus, we remember that the darkness is not dark to you. You are right there. Church, whatever circumstance you find yourselves in right now that feels um, where you feel alone, where you cannot discern the presence and the power of God to defend and to protect. So as you think about that circumstance, I just speak into that, the truth that the Lord is there. Holy Spirit, I pray even now for your people that you would show them where you are in that circumstance. However hard-pressed it seems, help them to discern where you are working. Thank you, God, that you work in ways that we can't see at times. But I just pray, Father, that you would give us a gift of faith, fresh and filling of your presence and your spirit to discern and to lean forward into the truth that you are God who does not abandon us. You went to hell and back for us. So, Father, we pray that you would continue to show your people where you are. And even this week, Lord, I pray for a quickening of your spirit within, that as we are in those work situations, when we are in those family situations or um, whatever circumstance, Father, that you would show us, give us a glimpse of you, and that we would sort of wake up to be like, oh, oh, I see you there, Lord. I see you. Thank you, God, that you love so well. Bless your children. Encourage their hearts that your destiny, your plans, your purposes are good. And you redeem all things. You're making all things new. We praise you, Jesus. You are worthy of that. In Christ's name, amen. As we continue to worship, I want to encourage you. Um, to lean into that place of faith. Um, there, there will be prayer ministers at the wall. Um, I will be there as well. And if you just need an encouraging word, um, go. Even if it's just like a little inkling, you're like, oh, maybe I should go. Just go. Just go. Um, you will be blessed. And the Lord um, 
wants to remind you of his presence in all things, whether you are um, rejoicing today or whether you feel an ache for him to come and meet you in some particular